podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm your host, Shelley Brisbane, and this is episode 76, Automating Things a Bunch of Ways. Well, friends, I have two great guests to talk with me about one of my favorite subjects, automation specifically on Apple platforms, uh, beginning with Brett Terpstra. He is a developer of Bunch, Mark II, and many other Mac apps and utilities. He's also co-host of the Overtired podcast, along with Christina Warren and Jeff Severns Gunsel. By day, he writes. By day, he writes software and documentation for Oracle, working on. Uh, sorry. Uh, I, I hate reading, reading <laughs> scripts. Uh, working to help rebrand their image from database giant to cloud computing competitor. Hi, Brett. How are you? I am. I'm swell. I'm swell. It's good to be here. Thanks for being on the show. I'm really glad to have you. Uh, and Darcy Bernard, who I know well from uh, the uh, Maxisability Roundtable podcast, where we are both co-hosts. And Darcy's actually a founding member of that podcast and has done other podcasts in his uh, career. And is is a bit of a, an automation a nerd wannabe expert? What, what what I don't know what term you like for that, Darcy. But but welcome and uh, what's your uh, automation journey? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the things that really attracted me to the Mac. Honestly, when I when I well, the first thing that attracted me to the Mac was that there was accessibility stuff built right in. Um, which for people who don't know, on at least at the time on the the window side of things there there really wasn't um but once i got using the mac i i really got interested in the stuff you could do with it automation wise like um like at the time it was just apple script and automator but it was just i found it fascinating how you could make all these apps talk to each other and and do things together because uh if i mean if there was something like that in the windows world i didn't know about it and am I right that that's there's some accessibility benefits to that? But you're you're automating stuff just in the way anybody else would. There just happen to be additional sort of accessibility perks and opportunities, and maybe some challenges in there as well. Yeah, yeah, there are accessibility benefits, sure. But a lot of my things are the things that anyone would do to to sort of you know speed up tasks like repetitive tasks that you do all the time and make them easier. Well, and the reason I really was excited to have. Brett join us is uh, I am a user of his app Bunch, which is an automation tool for Mac OS, a very simple one in terms of the way you interact with it as a user, which is something that's very cool about it. Uh, and I had some uh, interesting automation challenges I was trying to solve, and I was thinking about, well, what's the right tool? Should I be using this Bunch or Keyboard Maestro or whatever? And so those are some of the things I want to get into. But I just wanted to have Brett here to talk about uh, what uh, a bunch is and and how how Brett you got to the point where you came up with this really clever and deceptively simple tool called Bunch for macOS. Deceptively simple, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was hard to make, but it's pretty easy to use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All I wanted to do was launch multiple apps at once, um, and for years I just created Apple scripts that would launch, you know, tell app blank to activate or to launch. And uh, I realized that I was repeating the same script multiple times uh, for all of these different bunches of apps. And so I wanted a way to just in a plain text file, list the apps I wanted it to launch. And when I clicked that file, I wanted those apps to open. Um, Bunch began there as a way to like, just put all text files in a directory that it would show you all of the different kind of categories of apps that you would want to launch all at once. And when you opened up your bunch menu, you would get a list of those text files. You would click one and it would launch all of those apps. And it grew from there to do things like uh, system commands, hiding your desktop icons, uh, muting your audio, uh, changing your wallpaper, running shell scripts, running automator tasks, all of that, like all got kind of tacked onto it. But the core idea was just I wanted to be able to launch a set of apps at a single in a single click. And was it hard to make something that had such a simple interface for the user? For, for people who don't know, basically, you're editing a text file and you're adding the names of apps and then there's some syntax for other functions that you might do. But it's it's just incredibly simple. I mean, almost anybody can use it, even if they don't have any sort of background in scripting or any automation tools, really. Yeah, it actually goes back to I don't know how many people started their computing uh, with basic programming. Uh, but like the idea of 
a bunch goes back to like basic or like batch files in DOS, which is where I began. Um, just this idea of a very plain text syntax that's kind of script like, but is really just a sequence of commands that you can put into a text file and edit with any text editor. Like you don't need an interface in bunch to modify it. Uh, you don't have a user interface with a bunch of checkboxes to click or things to drag in. You just write out what you want it to do and it does it, which is kind of over the course of computing getting more and more uh, graphical. We've kind of lost touch with the idea of a batch file, uh, which is a Windows thing that Mac users might not know about. But uh, but this idea of just a very basic script uh, to do a series of tasks. Because it's simpler than AppleScript, even. I mean, oh, a lot. Yeah. I mean, AppleScript, you can figure out, but you still have to know a few things about the syntax of it. And, and I, you know, I can't write an AppleScript off the top of my head. If I have sure. a reference nearby, I can do it. Oh, you have but, to. Yeah, but, but Bunch is, is a lot simpler than that. And I guess once, once you got beyond that point of just wanting to launch apps, and I guess URLs is similar, similarly simple, did people come to you and say, these are more features that you want and then you had to sort of figure out how to do it or were they all kind of in your head like, well, if I can do this, I can do this other thing as well. <laughs> it's a total combination. Like part part of Bunch is what I call like mad science where I'm just like, oh yeah, if I can do that, it should be able to also do this. Uh, and then the other 50% of Bunch features came from feature requests and I get a lot of uh, interaction on, like I host I host all of the documentation. It's not open source, but I host the documentation on GitHub where I also host discussions and bug reporting. Um, and yeah, I have a pretty good community of people that, that come to me and say, well, in my in my world, I think Bunch should be able to do this. And it's something that I've never considered because it it like it doesn't apply to me. But like when I set out, when I do an app like this, I kind of I, I create a general scope for myself and say, this is this is the range of capabilities this app should have. This is the range of capabilities that say better touch tool or or keyboard keyboard maestro have. And I don't need to repeat their capabilities. So like I set this scope and when these feature requests come in. I have to determine, does this fit into the scope or is this something better handled by an existing, already amazing automation app? Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit because one of the conundrums I always have is like, which tool for what, since right. I have access to all of them. <laughs> uh, but I want to bring Darcy in here. And, and Darcy, talk about how you've, I think you might have been the one to, in, no, you didn't introduce me to Bunch, but fairly soon after I started using it, I discovered you were using it. So I'd, I'd love to know like how, how it, came to be and what kind of things you want to solve with it? Well, the thing that started, the reason I started using it is because um, I, like we do the accessibility podcast, like I, like I said, and, and usually there's a, all kinds of stuff I have to do at the start, um, you know, to like open up the Zoom link, open up the the page for the live stream, set a bunch of stuff, like set the inputs out with all these things that I have to do. And inevitably I'm forgetting to do one of them. So Bunch was great because I could just, you know, write down all the things I needed to happen but before the podcast would would start. Um, and uh, and and then it, it sort of grew from there. And I, I mostly just just for things like that, things where I have a bunch of things that have to happen before I can before I can do something. And for me, it was a combination of things like that for my podcast, where I want to start all things all at once. But then also for my day job, which for a long time was combination of web development and producing and reporting for a radio show. Not web development. I, sh I always say that, and I don't mean it. I mean, putting, putting web content on the site. It was only development in the sense that I was messing around in the background with WordPress and, and doing custom page stuff and sometimes messing with CSS. But it's similar in the sense that I'm looking at a production environment as well as a usually a text editor where I'm doing writing. And then I've got a number of other pages where I build uh, players and other tools that go onto my the website that I'm building. So so in essence, I've got I've got 
you know, five or six applications, Slack, I got Zoom, I got all, this, all these things I have to be running at one time. And so I started making bunches just to open stuff uh, like that, like you're saying, and then sort of expanded it to, okay, let's make sure the right inputs and outputs are set. Let's make sure that the do not disturb is on or the volume is at the level that I want it and all that sort of thing. And, but I guess this is the point at which I get to, okay, have I chosen the right tool for the task? Because you have things like Keyboard Maestro, which is what I was using before to create these sort of chain of events that happened. And, and I, I still use it for some different chains of events. Better Touch Tool, uh, Hazel, uh, just any number of things out there in the Mac world. We're blessed with all of these great utilities. And, and I guess I wonder, Brett, how you think about which app is appropriate for what kind of automation? And do you, do you sort of tinker around with all of them and then just <laughs> pick, pick some that you like? Yes, Yes, I do. Um, I, I, I absolutely like I when I built Bunch, I made it easy to integrate with things like Better Touch Tool and Keyboard Maestro uh, and Hazel because, like you said, there's a, a plethora of options. Um, I prefer a lot of basically sequential task automation. I like to do it in Bunch because it's just plain text. Whereas in Keyboard Maestro, I have to drag in each each part. I have to define the parameters for each part. But if I want to launch an app, I can just write the name of the app in a text file in Bunch, and, and it's good to go. But if there's something more complex that Keyboard Maestro handles better, I can just put the URL for a Keyboard, keyboard Maestro macro into a Bunch and, and, and basically integrate the two together as simply as that. Um, there's like there's two there's two parts of automation. One is efficiency. Like, can I do something faster by automating it? And the other part is what am I going to forget about when I am doing this task? And that's something that that bunch excels at. Like you need to have these apps launch. You need to have these audio settings. You need to have these desktop settings. And like you can just record all of those. And, and this is true of any any automation app, like the idea that you are uh, recording your context. Bunch just kind of excels at being able to just write out your context, uh, you, you, like the the apps and the settings that you need to to answer your question, though, it's always a toss up. There are so many good tools available and. Anything Bunch could do, you could you could make happen, uh, especially in Keyboard Maestro, which is extremely powerful. Um, I just like I made Bunch because I wanted a simpler syntax without having to deal with all the GUI parts of that. How, how does Bunch work with various uh, scripting languages? I mean, I'm sure you can you know, point to a point to a script, but that's one thing you can do with Keyboard Maestro is connect to all of these, you know, whether it's Apple script or Python or something like that. Yeah. Does, does bunch work as well for that sort of thing? Oh, totally. You can, if, so you can, if you type a dollar sign and then the path to a script, it will run that script or you can type three backticks followed by, uh, no, you don't even need any three backticks. And then you can insert any script you want with any, do you know what a hash bang is? Yeah. So like basically you you tell it in the first line after the three back text, you tell it what language you want to run it in and then insert your script, end it with three back text on a new line, and it will run that as part of the automation. Can you talk about that, how you develop that syntax? Because obviously, <laughs> you know, you start out and you're like, okay, I need enough syntactical markers or whatever you want. I need enough different indicators so that I can accommodate all the different kinds of things I want to do. So you're, you're essentially having, it's not a, it's not as complex as a language, but you are having to think like somebody who's building a language and say, yeah. what does this character mean? Yeah, no, there is some compiler theory that goes into a bunch file, but the, the triple backtick is a uh, reference to the fenced code uh, from GitHub flavored Markdown, which for most developers, for most people who would be advanced enough to be automating with a plain text file, uh, the triple backtick indicates a code block in Markdown. Uh, and that would be a familiar syntax. And so basically, I just played off of uh, 
syntaxes that I was very familiar with, like the if then uh, uh, logic syntax that Bunch uses very much fits into just about any programming language. Um, some of the syntax comes from Ruby. Most of it uh, is Markdown compatible. Uh, like you can create a checkbox uh, dialog using uh, GFM, GitHub Labor Markdown uh, syntax for checkboxes. And it's kind of, if you are part of, if you develop anything that's ever been on GitHub, then this syntax should be familiar. But it's also simple enough that someone just starting should be able to pick up. Right, because from my point of view, I'm learning it. I'm not a developer of any kind. I don't, I've, I've done Markdown, not not GFM specifically, but I've done Markdown just in terms of making like, you know, web content. So I, I get the concept of, I, I get the Markdown syntax and I get that your syntax has to have come from somewhere, but still you're having to figure out, well, which am I going to choose and and how am I going to keep it simple enough so that we're not doing a pro we're not programming, we're not scripting. We're actually, I mean, I guess we are, but we're just making a text file that has some very rudimentary syntax indicators that anybody can use if they have a mind to sort of become familiar with all that, with that syntax, if they're not a developer of any kind. Yeah. Well, and the goal is always just to keep it as simple as possible. Like the whole reason I wrote Bunch is to avoid writing Apple script, which, as you mentioned, can be <laughs> can be like the syntax is constantly changing depending on what app you're interfacing with. Yes. And, <laughs> and I just wanted something that was simple and you knew what this character did and you knew what writing out an app name would do and you didn't have to figure out app specific syntax for everything. And Bunch Bunch has like a programming uh, kind of language built in. You can do if then else statements. You can assign variables. You can you can reference variables. Like you can get super programmy with it, but you don't have to. Which is which is what I've always I've always strived to keep it um, basic enough that sure you can get complex and get crazy with it, but you should be able to at a minimum just write out the list of apps you want to launch and the files they should open. Darcy, have you done anything beyond app launching? Well, I guess you talk about putting inputs and outputs and stuff like that, but have you tried to make bunch do hard stuff? <laughs> well, not really. Just the things like, you know, cause you can also indicate, um, and I can never remember off the top of my head how to check, but there's like the, the syntax to indicate what to do when the bunch closes yeah. and what to, that sort of thing. And other than, yeah, changing the, the inputs um, and the the syntax to write, you know, run shortcuts and stuff like that. But like, yeah, for the most part, if if even if at the beginning, if all you just learned was just, um, you know, to put the, the name of the app in or the name of a like the URL for a website, you know, it's still super useful just before you even get into any of the other stuff. Which is like Markdown, right? Like I, you know, Markdown, I still have a cheat sheet that sits around because I don't use Markdown enough that I have all of the things memorized. I'm like, oh, wait, I, I know how to do a heading. <laughs> I know how to do a link. But every yeah. once in a while I forget something. And I feel a little bit like that with Bunch and that it's not particularly difficult. And I'm not doing if then statements and variables and the like, but I could. So I, I yeah. guess I wonder, too, um, we have shortcuts on Mac OS for, for a year or so now. Does Bunch have a way of interacting with shortcuts? And, and if whether it does or not, have you thought a lot about how what Bunch's role might be in a world that has shortcuts on the Mac? Yes. Um, so when shortcuts came out, uh, like Bunch existed before shortcuts existed on Mac. So it didn't come with it out of the box. But once it came out, I added syntax where you can just... So a command in Bunch is run by putting it in parentheses. Um, and you can put parentheses, shortcut, and then the name of any shortcut that you have in your shortcuts library. And that can take input. You can send text to it and you can receive text from it. Uh, so shortcuts that end with like a stop and return action can actually return input back to your bunch to use in whatever way the bunch needs to. But in essence, if if you just write shortcut and then the name of a shortcut, it will run a shortcut. 
Well, that's nice. I have to try that one. I haven't. I've, I'm newly jumping into shortcuts. I never have time oh, in the same. fall to. I never have time in the fall to install whatever the latest Mac OS is because I'm writing a book about iOS. And so last fall when Monterey came out, I just ignored it. And then I finally installed it. Now I'm like, oh, shortcuts. I need to do that. So like yeah. I'm a, I'm a longtime <laughs> automator user and yeah, I, I had like everything I needed in automator and I kind of ignored shortcuts when it first came to Mac. Um, I just didn't see a need for it. But when I realized you could drag an automator action into or an automator workflow into shortcuts and it would create a shortcut for that automator workflow then i realized maybe it wouldn't be as much work as i thought to transition to using shortcuts and i've been i've been making an effort to explore shortcuts more and do you end up having chains of things like bunches and shortcuts and <laughs> yes and 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 mm-hmm. and I, I'm just really interested in and because it's a challenge for me is like figuring out how you construct those chains in a way that is efficient as opposed to being some sort of Rube Goldberg machine because <laughs> you, you sort of come back to it like wait what was that keyboard maestro, maestro thing and what does it actually cause to happen what chain of dominoes does it knock down in my system oh my God I didn't design this the way I should have. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's absolutely a problem. Uh, I I do build Rube Goldberg machines, and some of my I refer to some of my uh, automations as fragile, meaning <laughs> if any one part of them, if a system update breaks one part of it, the whole automation will break. So, um, I have written tools like uh, Doing and and How's It that I can document these automations and then i he, i don't know if you're familiar with hook um, not hook hook is a an amazing app that lets you connect any file or or document to another document so you can uh, connect a shortcut to uh, an nv ultra or like an obsidian note where you have documented exactly what this requires and and what could break uh, so that in the future, you know, after you've run an automation for a year and you've just gotten used to it functioning and all of a sudden it stops functioning and you're at a point where you don't even remember like all of the parts that went into it. uh, You can just hit the hook shortcut on your uh, shortcut in in shortcuts or or a, a text file for a bunch or whatever and see the documentation that you wrote uh, to help you kind of backtrack, reverse engineer, and find the issue. That's super cool. I have it, to try that. It takes some effort. Like, I have learned to document everything at the time I make it, even if it seems obvious at the time, because I guarantee a year later I will have forgotten how this works. It seems like a lot of developers resist that, maybe because part of what they do is not writing, and you write. And I, I mean, as a writer myself, I'm like, how could you not document? But <laughs> yeah. if you're a developer, you're like, I don't want to write. I want to code. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Does it slow you down? Does it change your workflow, having to write everything, document everything right it away? It is hugely beneficial. Like, like the fact I blog, like brettterpshire.com consists mostly of me uh, immediately recording things I've learned, uh, or things I've done. And the, the, the process of documenting, uh, writing documentation or blogging about something I've just figured out, something I've just accomplished that helps me both debug the thing I've just made to make sure that it actually works the way I'm saying it does and gives me a reference. If I Google a problem there's about a 20% chance I end up linking back to my own blog where I've solved the problem <laughs> years ago. Love it. It happens to me all the time. That's so cool. Darcy, you're, now you were an automator person. Have you gone beyond that? Have you dug into shortcuts and a more modern I, I have, um, and mainly because it, it seems like I probably should because I, I can't imagine... I mean, the, the the tools are so similar in a lot of respects. I can't imagine they're going to keep Automator around forever. So it's sort of like, you know, probably should jump before being pushed. Um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it will be around for a while. But <laughs> um, 
you know, it won't maintain I, it. I, well, they, they haven't anyway, right? Yeah. It's just been sitting there. And and Automator's been dead for years. Yeah. Uh, shortcuts yeah. definitely. Let's make, let's all make the move to shortcuts. <laughs> yeah, and and it does have. I mean, right now, uh, and this is both on on uh, iOS and on the Mac. Shortcuts does have a few accessibility issues, especially you know as a as a voiceover user. But it, I can get through them. They're just um, it is a little tricky. Um, and actually, it's it's to just go back a little bit to what Brett was saying earlier. Sometimes, sometimes after you know dealing with something where you have a, a graphical interface and you're plugging things together, I definitely it, it's nice to go back to something like Bunch where you could just write stuff out in text because it is a lot easier from from like an accessibility standpoint to just you know write out what you need rather than try and figure out which which uh, actions you need. And then if you if you forgot one to to try and rearrange them, because that's not the easiest thing to do in the world, especially with with voiceover. Totally. So. Well, I want to talk to, to Brett a little bit about accessibility, because you, Brett, you develop so many tools besides Bunch. We mentioned a few of them at the top and, you know, feel free to name drop any more that you want to. But I wonder what impact accessibility has had either on you just deciding that you want to develop in a way that meets accessibility needs or hearing from users out there who said, hey, this is a way that you could make this more accessible. Yeah. Well, so uh, Sight is the one that that first bit me because I'm I'm fully abled and I like I never, when I first started writing software, I never considered what this would be like to use with any kind of disability. Um, and a sooner sooner than later, I heard from blind users that would let me know uh, that so like my first app was called Mood Blast um, and it was basically a little pop up and you could tell it what you were doing and it would send it out to like Facebook and Twitter and Jaiku and uh, there were 12 different social Jaiku, media. God, that right? takes me back. Right. Yeah. This <laughs> I was going to say, I haven't heard anyone mention Jaiku and I don't know how wow. long. This is this is that old. Uh, but back then, like I had I had never given a second thought to accessibility and making sure that my buttons had labels and that everything had help uh, associated with it. Um, and the feedback I got from my very first software users um, led me to pay a lot more attention to that. I still like it's 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 not my it's not a default mode for me to design for differently abled users. But it has definitely become a much higher consideration. When I, like brettterpshire.com, the first time I went to it with a screen reader and, and did not look at the screen and just tried to navigate it with a screen reader, I realized, oh man, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. And I spent probably two weeks um, really trying to make brettterpshire.com as navigable with a screen reader as I could. Um, I don't know if I've done as good a job with bunchapp.co. Uh, I really, I need to take another look at that. But accessibility concerns have definitely impacted the way I, I make apps. And as soon as I add a button to an app, I consider <laughs> I consider the users I've heard from in the past and, and, and the complaints I've had, and I make sure that everything is is as accessible as I can make it. And Darcy, before we got going, you were telling Brett that there's a little issue in Bunch that you wanted him to know about. So I'm happy to bring users and developers together yeah. here on the show. Yeah. Could you could you talk a little bit about what that is? Because it's well, interesting to me. It's an example of how an accessibility problem can be something that is fairly small. I won't say minor because it's important. All of them are important, but it's it's not something that you would necessarily think about. It's not, oh, well, the buttons in the preferences dialog are labeled or they aren't labeled. It's it's something a little more esoteric. Well, it's, it's interesting because sometimes uh, um, when you're using accessibility stuff, sometimes you don't know if something, like if something's missing, you don't know sure. that it's missing because sure. you don't know that it's supposed to be there in the first place. So... When I first started using Bunch, I would, you know, trigger the Bunch and I was reading all the stuff that explained how it worked and you could then, you know, select it again to close the Bunch. And that's when I was like, there must be something visually to indicate that a Bunch is running. And 
and I, apparently it's like a like a checkbox or something and it, and voiceover for whatever reason um doesn't see it yeah so um so I, i'm not um i don't know where what the, the deal is there but it's it's uh you know that that's so sometimes that happens sometimes i'll, I'll be using an app and there'll be um controls that for whatever reason are just not there and i don't even know they're missing because because um i don't know they're supposed to be there and it's not even you know independent developers that are like apple is guilty of this too like one thing i just recently noticed in ios 16 i was going into the icloud settings and were like the managed storage thing and i noticed that it doesn't show you like it's like that's weird it doesn't show me how much space each thing is taking up anymore and then I, I asked someone and it turns out it in fact is showing that, but for whatever reason, voiceover isn't seeing it anymore. Yeah. So like sometimes you just don't know that something's missing because you don't know it's supposed to be there. Well, like, and as you said at the top, like Mac OS has a lot of that just built in. I get, I get a lot of stuff for free uh, just by using Mac OS development tools and like the the menu items and the bunch menu use the standard Mac OS tools to set something to on or off. But I apply a custom image to that. And I'm very curious now after talking to you to go back and see if applying that custom image is somehow affecting the way screen reader sees it or, or voiceover sees it. Um, Maybe. I, I didn't do anything that should have defeated that. But that's, yeah, I'm going to have to look into that. And I don't know if there's a way to label that image or if that's even what you would do. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's going to take some research, but definitely worth looking into. I was going to ask you about Apple developer tools and and resources. So you say there's some accessibility that you get for free. Are you somebody who pays attention to resources that Apple provides developers, whether they be documentation or WWDC content or anything? Because they, they always talk about accessibility in, you know, those contexts if people are are focusing on it. But I kind of wonder if you're just out there developing and you're you're doing your job and you're not necessarily thinking, oh, I wonder what Apple's doing for me for accessibility. You might not encounter that. So I guess I just wonder what your experience with that has been. Yeah. So I am I'm ADHD and bipolar and my my coding tends to happen in manic hyper focus sprees. Uh, where I'm just like just trying to see what works and and exploring every possibility and not paying a lot of attention to the details. Um, the like working in Xcode, if as long as you fill in the fields they give you, you're pretty much guaranteed baseline accessibility. As long as you make use of the tools that are built into Xcode. Um, it's not until I get a complaint from a user that I actually step back, uh, go into the research and and figure out exactly why this is happening. So I'm not a person who methodically uh, approaches everything from an accessibility standpoint. Um, I'm a person who goes back and repairs in post. And that's just... That's just my personality. As much as I wish I was a more methodical person, um, that has never that has never been the case. So, um, yes, Apple provides amazing resources uh, for accessibility. I shouldn't say for from from my abled perspective, they are amazing resources. Um, I don't know if I if I were differently abled, I don't know if I would consider them sufficient or not. Uh, but from my standpoint, the the resources are there. I just have to make use of them. Well, and I don't know even that you could, uh, you know, check for everything because, I mean, you know, we've been talking about voiceover here and, and, and my needs, but that's just one situation. Right. I mean, there's a lot of different different disabilities and I don't think you could even even check all of them, even if even if you we're wanting to do that because there's so many different situations and everyone is it, you know, everyone's needs are are different. Vision, vision is the easiest one, whether you're doing web development or app development or, or writing, uh, vision is the easiest one with the most, most tools available to, to test in various circumstances. 
Right. There's rules of the road. I mean, this it's, it's as you say, with web accessibility there, I mean, there's literally a guide. There's yeah. the WCAG guidelines out there. And if you want to know what's expected from a web standards point of view, there's a document you can follow. Yeah, totally. And there are tools that you can yeah, you can see absolutely. exactly what your how your tool will appear or or audibly uh, expose itself to anybody. Um, but for other disabilities, that's not as common. I mean, I will say right. that on the vision side, and, and this is personal use case stuff for me, but I'm low vision. And for my purposes, what that means is I'm almost, almost always in dark mode or smart and colors, which has evolved, especially on the Mac platform. And I would imagine that especially as developers are trying to make their interface, number one, be attractive. Number two, follow Apple's interface guidelines and number three support all of those various modes that they're going to be points where you're like I don't I don't know what to do like I might have if I'm using dark mode I want my background to be dark and my text to be light at all times well you might have an interface convention where changing those up changing up those contrast levels is important for signaling to your user some kind of information and I might come along and go, well, I insist on using smart and for colors as opposed to, and uh, wait, why, why aren't you using dark mode? Well, there's a reason for it, but you as a developer have no way of knowing that. But that's a uh, legitimate, that's a legitimate <laughs> well, it's, it's concern. Legit. It's just, it's a complexity, right? And it's yeah. not something that you can always test against. And it's the kind of thing developers learn by mm-hmm. hearing from users who actually have to, who actually need dark mode. Uh, for whom it's not just an aesthetic choice. Um, And that's, you learn that as you develop, for sure. Smart Invert Colors was a reverse video feature that existed long before dark mode. It was explicitly an accessibility feature. And then dark mode came along and people responded to it as an aesthetic because they had opinions. You know, it's easier for for many people to read in dark mode who don't have a visual disability. And developers are like, okay, well, how do I take advantage of this? How do I create a mode that supports users who want to use dark mode, which is how they're thinking about it? But then people like me come along and go, oh, well, you know, my preferred method would be in dark mode because... Those interfaces that are designed for a non-disabled person are, generally speaking, going to be more reliably consistent than, say, Smart Invert Colors, where when I switch the colors, there's no telling what, yeah. you know, back in the day, before Smart Invert Colors, you would literally get a negative image. So I couldn't be in Smart Invert Colors <laughs> without seeing a negative image, which is super annoying, which is why we like dark mode. Um, but anyway, all that is just to say, I I understand the developer's uh the developers struggle, and it's it's good to hear when you when a developer says, "Yeah, I pay attention to feedback," because that that varies a lot with a developer. And you know, one thing I've noticed just I, I first got my first Mac in two thousand six, so it's been a while. But just going from then to now, it does seem developers are a lot more aware of accessibility now than than they were. Like like I can I can write someone about a Mac or iOS app and say that, you know, there's some issues with voiceover and there's, there's a good chance that they, even if they've not used it before, but they've probably maybe heard of it or they've at least heard it. So it seems like that, that is getting better. And and developers do tend to like a lot of time when you make them aware that there's an issue that they, they tend to, to fix it. And, and, you know, if they want to fix it and get their apps working for everyone. Why do you think that is? Why do I think developers want yeah, to do why, that? Why is there more awareness? Like I've I've learned my lessons kind of the hard way by just finding out my stuff didn't work. Uh, but ha- has there been a movement? I, I think so, and I think iOS really helped because mm-hmm. um, iOS, like there were there were some uh, blind Mac users prior to iOS, but voiceover when voiceover came to iOS, that was a huge thing because. See, it used to be if you were um, using any sort of uh, computer or whatever, you had to buy an expensive screen reader. Like the the screen readers for for Windows, at least they can they can be upwards of a thousand dollars. Like is that like Dragon? The, well, there's Dragon's a dictation. Dragon's oh, okay. like, Jaws, um, NVDA. Well, NVDA is not, yeah. doesn't cost, but yeah. Jaws is sort of the leader yeah, in the Windows okay. world. There was Window Eyes before the a lot. Yeah, and then on the phone, there was the same thing. Yeah. And iOS was the first one to just have it built in. And also, the other thing that's nice now is you can you can ex- you can tell them there's some accessibility issues, and if if the developer wants to do it, you know they can turn on Voiceover yeah. and they can see what 
their app is like. Yeah. It, that wasn't always an option. And I just think, I, I don't know, I just get the sense, at least from some developers, that's like, this is really cool. Like, I I, I, uh, I didn't know this was here, but I, I want to make this work now. Yeah. Yeah. So Apple has provided the tools that actually make it possible for people who, uh, for whom accessibility is a kind of secondary development option. Uh, mm -hmm. we can now, we can now just see things the way you do, which is very helpful. Right. Well, and, and back in the, the distant past, like back in the, the nineties in the system seven days, you actually had to, there was an extension or control panel, they called it back in those days called close view that you would install that would do magnification and reverse video. And there wasn't an analog for a screen reader, but the point I'm making is you had to actually install it and restart a Mac. Once voiceover came to Mac and iOS, Anybody who knew how could invoke it on any device. So you didn't have to install anything. You didn't have to have any focus on accessibility. All I have to do is tell you Command F5. And yes, you have to learn the syntax of VoiceOver, what the keyboard shortcuts mean, and in iOS what the gestures are. But you can enable it and start seeing what it looks like with literally a tap. And you can do that on your machine or you can do that at the Apple Store anywhere you want. And so a user can have an interaction with a developer where they can say, if you turn on voiceover and you tap this button, it doesn't work for me. And the developer can go, oh, I see, because it just says button, button, button. It's not labeled. Yeah. Right. Well, and like in web development, uh, there are extensions built into Firefox and Chrome, maybe even Safari, that will show you any web page you're working on uh, with accessibility annotations and tell you this doesn't have this, this image doesn't have an alt value. This uh, this menu doesn't isn't uh, doesn't have an aria uh, classification. Like all of these things are, we just have the tools to make this super easy now. Yeah, and then yeah. there are tools that go beyond that, which we talked about on the last episode of the show, actually, that you can run against the WC3, W3C standard. So it will not only just sort of point to things that it sees on a cursory examination, but it'll dig deep and it'll basically tell you, you've got 65 errors on your website, go fix them. And many times those errors are repeated, so it's not as bad as it looks. I'm, I'm going to have uh, to go back and listen to this episode. This would be good information <laughs> for me. We <laughs> talked about the uh, the WCAG 2.2 uh, guidelines, which yeah. are about to be approved with, a, with an expert. And we, we talk about some tools at the end. And, so web development in that sense is, even though there are still complexities of things like color contrast and, you know, does this script work with a, a screen reader or does it not, there's a lot of just like, okay, I'm just testing it. I'm just testing the code against the guidelines, which is maybe a little more straightforward than some of what you're talking about with, you know, making sure this button or this checkbox is labeled appropriately because you've added a custom image so that you can create an interface look that you want. Color contrast kills me as a web designer. Like, and, and, and I'm not saying it's not worth it. I'm just saying, like, so many color combinations that I want to use on my web pages mm -hmm. do not pass right. WCAG uh, contrast and then, standards. And there, there are a lot of websites that I don't go to because they don't. I mean, and, and usually they're extreme color contrast issues. And it's all done in terms of ratios. Like, yeah. uh, is the contrast you know, two times or four times. And WCAG has levels of compliance. So you can be A, AA or AAA yeah. compliance. So you can, you can say, well, I kind of, it kind of works, but yeah. it's not as good as it could be. I and shoot then there are other AAA. Sites, <laughs> yeah, do. there you go. That's, that's what you want. And then there are other sites where clearly that's not something they've thought of. And, and, you know, for user like me, it's like, well, how hard, because I can get the text out. I can find a way. How hard do I want to work to do it? Yeah, right. Well, let's jump into back into automation a little bit. And and I, I came up with this idea, and, and you guys will have to tell me whether you think it it works. But I and I started from the you, you provide with bunch a bunch of examples of uh, bunches that can be adapted for particular applications or scenarios, and they include and and I added a couple of my own. And these these are all sort of relevant to all of us, I guess. Uh, coding and uh, writing, website production, podcasting, office work, creative pro that's creative projects, that sort of thing. And so I thought maybe we could run through some of these and just talk about some of the things that uh, you suggest somebody might want to add to a bunch that would sort of help make their environment uh, work for those kinds of uh, tasks. 
So let's start with coding. Obviously, that's the one that you're most familiar with, Brett. So what what kinds of things are in your example coding bunch or what kind of things when you're coding do you want your bunch to accomplish before you get going? Um, yeah. So for me, there are like there are specific apps that I use when coding, things like Tower for Git management, uh, Forklift for as my file browser, Xcode, Sublime Text, iTerm. Like all of those get launched as part of the bunch. Um, and then I like each coding project has its own uh, kind of specific needs. So like my bunch that that starts coding, uh, it launches all of the apps that are universal to all of my projects and then offers me a menu that lets me choose from my current coding. <laughs> we'll call them obsessions. Um <laughs> And and I when I choose one, it launches any additional tasks, specific uh, sublime text projects or or specific uh, like uh, I term directories, uh, terminal directories. And and uh, I always have it start a timing a timing dot app um, keeps track of my where I spend my coding time which for me as an ADHD person who gets both hyper-focused and very distracted, um, it's good for me to be able to see where I spend my time. So I always, all of my bunches trigger different timing workflows, uh, set the project and set the tasks so that I'm actually tracking time on everything I work on. Um, And yeah, so that's coding, I guess. And then I don't know if this is, important to you. It's important to me in other contexts, but I'll just ask it in coding because you're using so many different apps. But are things like window management and window placement important for you? Yeah. The way you work? Yeah, they are. And and so I use Moom. Um, I can't remember the developer. I can't. I use it too, but I'll, I'll put a link, but I can't remember the developer yeah. either. Great, great app. Many tricks, maybe? Is that for many tricks? Um, but Moom is just a top-notch window uh, management app. And uh, I just call an Apple script command uh, that triggers a Moom, a preset Moom uh, window layout. So once all of the apps are loaded and all of the windows have come up, it organizes them for me using Moom. And that's easier. And and again, that goes back to choices. So that's not something that Bunch is as well equipped for as Moom is. I have considered that out of scope for Bunch. Uh, Bunch can position windows that it creates uh, because Bunch can show you like terminal output. It can show you uh, images and quick look previews and it can control the positioning of those windows. But for all of the apps that it launches, for all of the files that it opens, it does no window management. I've considered that out of scope because an app like Moom uh, or any app, any Apple scriptable window manager is going to be superior to what Bunch can do. Yeah, and I uh, Minitrix is the company that makes Moom, and it's ten bucks. So it's a good ten bucks to spend because so Moom, Moom is great. It's the and best. I, I'm obsessed with window placement and management because I, I want to, I'm not a tile window person. I was talking to people today about stage manager and how it does windows. And I said, why they could just Sherlock Moom and put that <laughs> Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so writing, and I, I guess I'm thinking about nonfiction writing. I, I only make that differentiation because in nonfiction writing, you're probably accessing browsers to do research. Maybe you have some other apps that you work with in addition to the app that you're actually writing in, whereas in fiction, in theory, and it's not always this way, and I write a little fiction, but in, in theory, you just open up a window and you just start typing what comes out of your head. Right. So I guess I wonder, so when you're when you're writing, how do you think about a bunch? Well, so I have different, I have different bunches for different projects. Uh, so for example, when I'm working on the documentation for a bunch, I'm going to have it open uh, the bunch website so I can view previous documentation. I'm going to have it open my documentation project for a bunch, which is uh, Jekyll website. And I'm going to have it open um, the... No, that's basically it. Those two things. But like for each documentation project that I work on, 
it's going to open a different website and different Sublime project for me. So you're not that for for writing. It's not as complex a set of set of tools as it is for coding necessarily. It's not. It's not. I like. I write everything in Sublime text. Um, like I I use when I'm blogging. I use Multi Markdown Composer. Uh, but because I want a full project display, like the bunch documentation, for example, is written in a dozens of markdown files in in a directory. And I need to be able to flip between them very easily. And that's just easier for me in Sublime. So just opening one Sublime project is all it takes. Yeah, see, I use BBEdit to work on my iOS access book, and those are all basically sure. XHTML files. And so I call that window that has all of those files available to me on the sidebar, and then I got a browser, and then I have, for some reason, well, I know why I do it. It's it's a complicated, weird reason, but I have my TOC <laughs> in Word uh, because I want to see the, the, the indentation and all that kind of stuff. And also, a lot of times people ask for the table of contents, so I send them a nice-looking version. And then I have browsers and I have a graphics app. And uh, now I interact with shortcuts, but I can do that from the menu bar, from the keyboard. So, yeah, I think of writing projects as these. And, and there are a lot of those things, those windows that I'm not using constantly, but I want them there. I want them all open at once. And when I was doing this with Keyboard Maestro, used to I would end my day job and I would say, okay, three o'clock in the afternoon is when I start working on my book because I start the day job pretty early. And so I even had Keyboard Maestro just launch that set of stuff at three o'clock. Now I just have Bunch do it whenever I get over there. It's, it's not, <laughs> can you do that? Can you, can you, could you, I guess you just call a script that would get the time and, and launch a bunch of Oh, actually, uh, so Bunch has this uh, concept of front matter. Uh, if at the top of your file you you add a block of text uh, delineated by three dashes, um, and in between the the three dashes you add keys, and you can have open at colon, and then give it like a day and time. Or you can say open open at three p.m. Cool. And that bunch, as long as bunch is running, that bunch will load at three p.m. every day. And can I close them out too? Because like what what Darcy was saying about wanting to know whether the bunch is open or closed, I always forget that closing a bunch is a thing you can do. And so I tend to like <laughs> right? either quit apps or go on to the next thing. And I would be perfectly yeah. happy if at a certain time specific time can, I could just make it go away. Make them all close. You can do you can do close at and have a specific time, or you can do close after and add like thirty minutes or sixty minutes and have something close after a specific period of time after it was open. Very cool. That's oh, cool. That's cool. Yeah, I haven't really looked at the the front matter stuff too much. I need to. Yeah, I just discovered that that, that yeah. existed, and I hadn't figured out yet quite what it did. I, I was reading the there, documentation. There's there so for many, so many front matter keys. <laughs> put the, put put that in the show notes because oh my, there's like thirty different keys you can use. I feel like with Bunch, I have to just like jump in a little bit at a time and like, okay, oh, I learned yeah. a few more things, and now I have well, to and that's what I've tried. I've tried to make it something that you can look up. If there's something you think I wish I could do this, you should be able to look it up. And figure out how it works. And I've I've spent a lot of time on Bunch documentation to try to make it possible to get started using Bunch with just very basic usage. And then if you feel the need to go further, uh, I, I've tried to make it easy to figure out how to do that. Uh, the Bunch documentation is some of the most extensive documentation I've ever written. Yeah, it it is really good. I've I've. I've looked through it a lot, but like I said, I can only do so much and then have to, sure. you know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about podcasting. And Darcy, I'll let you kick this one off. We talked about it a little bit, but what does your uh, podcasting bunch look like? Um, well, the first thing it does is it opens up the um, whatever podcast I'm doing. There's probably a Zoom URL associated with it. So I can open that up. Um, and then I have the another page that has to open up that shows the because we do a live stream. Um, I have a shortcut that changes my focus mode to, because I don't know if you can do that in Bunch or can you, I know you can do not disturb, but I don't know if you can do different focus modes. No, fo focus modes require shortcuts. So, I mean, you can okay. trigger the shortcut from the Bunch, but yeah, you, yeah you're on the I right do. track. Right. So I do that. And the other thing the shortcut does is um, launches the specific um, audio hijack 
session that I need. Um, so that's what that does. And then the rest of it, I think, um, I don't really do this anymore because I've switched from Dropbox to, to Maestro, but I used to have it like disable Dropbox just because sometimes it could slow things down. Mm-hmm. And um, what else? There's a couple other, there's a few other things. Oh, open up Twitter, open up a blank document text. There's just a lot of little things that I'm going to need eventually. And it's things that I inevitably forget. Um, so it's, it's just all that, all those kind of things. And then like, and this is where I have to be careful to, uh, cause I have another shortcut that runs, that turns off the focus mode. And that's where I have to be careful to close the bunch because otherwise I'll be in this focus mode forever and not realize it for a little while. So, and Brad, I know you've got a podcast sample bunch. Do you do anything significantly different than what Darcy was talking about when you're for your own podcast? No, that's basically like I open up the show notes in Quip. Uh, we use Quip for like shared show notes. Um, open up my audio hijack setup and open up my browser to. We actually switched using Riverside, uh, which does the recording internally. So I have a, a bunch that specifically opens Chrome, which is not my default browser. And you can just by putting Chrome colon and then a URL. It will open it in Chrome instead of in my default browser, which is Firefox. Uh, So I open that specifically in Chrome, which uh, Riverside requires. Open up my show notes and uh, then quit. Like uh, like Darcy was saying, I quit Dropbox. I suspend Backblaze backups and then I'm ready to go. Yeah, I um, am a big believer in different browsers having different jobs both for privacy reasons and for things like that, where there are several things, tools like that that require Chrome. I can't remember if um, I have a, another friend who does, and I don't think it's Riverside, and I know it's not Anchor, but there's another tool that is is often used for uh, contain, doing remote recording of, the, of a podcast. It's the same thing, and it requires Chrome. And yeah, I'm a Firefox person too. And then weirdly... Uh, I use Safari to shop on Amazon. If I'm going to do that, that's that's where I do sure. it. So, all the browsers, but not all at the same time. And then for me, like my podcasting start is similar. I have slight, some slightly different apps, but for me, for the magic sort of happens at the end of the show because it's for me it's a combination of bunch to close things, to open folders, open finder windows that I want to see so that I can process files that are either coming to me or or have files that I. Uh, have dropped, you know, check, see if they go the right place. And then I use Hazel to send files based on their tags and their names to the places where I want them to go. Um, yes. But I do, you know, I make sure I quit Zoom and I restore Dropbox Mister all or Dropbox when I was using that that app. Um, actually, I think I, I have three and I have I've one of them, the middle one was designed to just handle file management uh, and closing a bunch of things after the podcast. And then the third one was kind of like, okay, really shut down everything, return, return to the pre-podcast status quo. But I've kind of, I need to work on the middle one because it doesn't quite do things exactly like I want to. But this machine mostly just does podcasting, but every once in a while I wanted to do something else. And so I'm, I'm still kind of working on those. But uh, I've, I've found bunches for sort of sorting out all the complexities of showing what I want to see for podcasts really helpful. Point of interest, um, the most recent feature I added to Bunch was the ability to use specific Chrome profiles. Oh, neat. Uh, so you can you can type Chrome and then in square brackets, the name of a profile, which is case insensitively matched to all existing profiles. So you can have a page open in a specific Chrome profile which is another way of separating kind of like for privacy or whatever. And that solves another problem I had, which I, I must confess that, that one of the reasons I thought of doing this podcast was I was sitting around thinking about what I wanted to add to Bunch. And what I would really like to do is be able to launch a URL in Bunch, but but launch a set of tabs, right? I, I and, yeah. and I haven't found a way to do that natively, but if I do that with Chrome Profiles, I can just, well, this is the set of tabs that launches with that profile, and I can get those tabs. Is that yeah. the easiest way to do that? That, that is. Um, like, I, 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 I hard-coded a way to open Finder tabs, which basically shells out to AppleScript and hits Command-T to open a new tab. <laughs> um, it's it's a kludge, and and it's not great with uh, with internationalization um 
it, there's a lot of quirks, but um, like I've I've had the feature request to do that kind of thing with browsers, but because there are so many different browsers and so many different ways of doing it, um, I've never considered it in scope. But yes, if you open a bunch of URLs in the same Chrome profile, it will open them all in tabs. Which is exactly what I would need. All right, I'm gonna. I'll be working on that later. In fact, I'm gonna hang up right now. I'm gonna go work on. No, uh, um, <laughs> and I, I put a couple of other uh, scenarios in here, sort of office tasks and creative tasks. And I don't have anything particular to say about them. I guess the reason I put the creative tasks thing in here is because, like, if you're working on audio projects or if you're making video projects, you're you're using. Uh, you're dealing with inputs and outputs, and then obviously you're launching apps like, well, in my case, it's Adobe Audition, or if I were doing video, it might be Final Cut or Premiere or something like that. And I don't know, have you encountered any users who have any particular sort of creative projects, audio, video, video stuff that they would like to accomplish that Bunch has been able to help them with? Um, I'm going to say yes. I don't remember the specifics. Fair enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I would, I would say that digging through the forums, uh, if you go to, uh, github.com slash ttscoff slash bunch slash discussions, um, like you could find a lot of the questions that have come up and the answers that have been given for people trying to solve various problems. Cool. That is another link. We'll have lots of links. We, we, we have an extensive show note linkage thing going on here. Um, I, the last thing we do on this podcast is something called One More Thing. I'd only put this question in this afternoon, so uh, I'll give you a minute to take a look and see if you want to think about what your answer might be. But while you're doing that, uh, Darcy, any, any other things about Bunch or the ways you use it that you want to talk about? Um, not really in terms of, um, of, in terms of Bunch. I will say, um, just because it's um, another thing that, that – Brett does for the for the show notes for the podcast. I really like. I really like the the markdown service tools. Yes. Yeah, those make. are cool. I like. I them use too. those a lot. Like, just certain things. Like, for example, like the one that's just super useful is where if you're getting a whole bunch of links, like the one where it grabs all the tabs and then makes them into reference links. Have you ever really used useful. Search Link? No. Oh my god! That. You have to check out Search Link. It's out of all of the projects I've ever created. This automator workflow called SearchLink is my most used tool. And with it, you can, in very simple markdown syntax, write out what you want to link to, select it, run the shortcut or the automator sequence with a, a hotkey, and it will insert the first Google match for it. Oh, and, that's cool. And like if I want to if I want to link a TV show for an overtired show notes item, I just type exclamation point IMDb and then the name of the TV show, select it, hit control shift L and it's linked. I'm done. I don't have to switch my browser. I don't have to do anything. I can. And and if you select text with no exclamation point or anything and just hit control shift L, it'll insert the first Google result for that text that's and amazing that's, that's great so much that is time. so cool it's I, I will. Such a well, time and i forgot to to mention that the other thing i the other sort of podcast related bunch that i do is podcast production once the file is all edited and i'm ready to go and then for the movie podcasts i do lines of towers and shields i have a, a text expander snippet that makes this little markdown thing that's going to be my show notes but i still have to look everything up i have to look up the imdb i have to look up the trailers and it's always the same set of links i always just open a bunch of tabs yeah. and search and I think this is going to save me some time. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Search, link. Right. search link. That's the takeaway from Rock this on. episode. Search link. I love it. <laughs> and I, I will just say, because uh, we're, we're since we're complimenting Brett on his cool software, I use Marked every day, too, for my book as a preview. So I, I, I insist on writing these chapters in XHTML files and BBEdit. And so I just, every time I save, Marked, is, Marked 2 is just sitting right there making showing me what it's going to look like and it makes me very happy so thank you for that thanks thanks <laughs> so so my one more thing question and uh, take this as, as whimsically as you want um because that was the intent uh what is something that you enjoy doing for fun that you have or would like to automate 
Here, here's my problem with the question is what I do for fun is automate. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so like, honestly, like I find like for me, if I'm going to unwind after a long day of writing or coding, I want to sit down and I want to either write regular expressions, <laughs> which I find very <laughs> relaxing or I want to automate something and I and I get a lot of joy out of figuring out how to make this thing that takes four steps instead take one step. And and I will spend as much time on the automation. I'm sure you've seen the XKCD cartoon of the like automation curve. I will spend as much time on the automation as it would have taken me to do the task four or five times. But it will yeah. be it will be repeatable <laughs> ad infinitum. I totally get that. I totally see, get and, that. and I think that probably is close to what I would answer in the sense that now that I know about SearchLink, for fun, I am going to make my show notes creator for Lions, Towers, and Shields a thing of beauty that just populates all the links. And oh, and one yes. of the things that that I do, uh, in, I get IMDb links and I get trailer links. I also have a little section called the self-referential LTS where we any episode that we mentioned in the show from the past, I refer to it. And obviously I know what the syntax for the URLs is. So I'm just going to like make that happen. Oh, it's going to be great. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Darcy Bernard and Brett Terpster, thank you so much for being with me on Parallel. This was a lot of fun. And before we go, I want to give each of you a chance to talk about, tell me what you, uh, where people can find you on the internet and what you do. And we've been spending a lot of time talking about Brett's uh, tools. So we'll let Darcy go first and tell people where they can find you and what you're up to. Um, you can mostly find me on Twitter. I am DHS Darcy on Twitter. And uh, although lately I haven't been posting a lot, just Wordle scores, which <laughs> may or may not be an interest to you. But um, but yeah, that's that's where you can mostly find me. Max Accessibility Roundtable podcast every two weeks with you and me and whoever oh, else true. we that's can, uh, can roust up. And Darcy is the guy who uh, wrangles us and edits the show after we're done. So he has more work than the rest of us. Rep Terpstra, we've been talking about all of your great tools, uh, and many of which are free or donate where, some of which you sell. But tell people where they can find you and where, where all your stuff is located. So everything I do, you can find at brettterpstra.com, which is an awkward URL with three T's in the middle of it. Um, and if you go to brettterpstra.com slash projects, you can find literally everything. Um, Overtired, my one current podcast is at overtiredpod.com. And you can find me on any social media platform as TTSCOFF, TTSCOFF, uh, which has a whole story behind it, but, but, I have I have branded that. That is where you could find Very me. Very cool. And I'm sure he'll tell you the story if you hit him up on the socials. <laughs> Thank you, Darcy and Brett. This was really great. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can follow us at relay.fm slash parallel. You can follow us on Twitter at Parallel Pods. If you have comments or suggestions for the show, get in touch. But we'll be back in two weeks, probably not automating things, because I don't know if I can stand the excitement that automation generates in my life. It'll, it'll be something else. Maybe Apple will do something for us, and we'll, we'll talk about iPads or something. Bye now. <laughs>